Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Max, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Dude, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I, I actually came across you by way of our former guest, John Levy, when we both met uh, in New York. And I started doing some digging into your story and uh, was really intrigued by, you know, what you're up to and everything you've done prior to that. So on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your journey, your story, your background, and how that has brought you to everything that you're up to? Dude, I would be, I would be honored to. Um, so I am a filmmaker. Uh, I've also done a bit of TV presenting, which I still... Uh, do. Um, you know, my first job out of college was actually anchoring Al Gore's TV network current for five or six years. So I did that. I was one of the sort of founding hosts and producers of the network. Uh, but because I was sort of, I got the job, um, coming out of college, I was a filmmaker as an undergraduate. I became very quickly sort of, uh, I sort of identified with the mission of the network and that was to use the tools of technology to empower young, passionate storytellers to take back the reins of mainstream media. And so that was like a really cool, calling card for me for, you know, six years. It was sort of evangelizing how technology, you know, the exponential rate at which technology sort of advances and the price point lowers was really allowing this sort of Cambrian explosion of creativity for filmmakers that, you know, previously was cost prohibitive. Um, and so uh, that was a blast, um, needless to say, dream job scenario. Uh, and then I left um, – when I, when I felt like my sort of growth and learning curve sort of plateaued, uh, to create my own content. And so, um, you know, I've sort of dabbled in, in different sort of realms. I'm a multi-hyphenate, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a musician. I love to write music, which I do regularly. I, I actually put out an EP a couple of years ago and a tour to support that. Um, and, you know, that was a blast. And then somewhere in that mix, uh, the sort of post-current, uh, time for me was I, I created a series called Acting Disruptive, which was a, a video series uh, on the web that AOL funded. It did really well. It was sort of about disruptive ideas and innovation, but through the lens of celebrity. So it was my way of sort of uh, Trojan horsing a conversation about disruptive ideas into the mainstream by way of, you know, celebrity, A-list celebrities that have like technology company, pet passion project startups. So like Jessica Alba and the Honest Company, Adrian Grenier and his company Shift, you know, Jared Leto and his, he's got a sort of tech company called Vert, which is all about like live streaming and stuff. So um, that was a really, uh, you know, cool series, but it was pretty narrow in that it was all about sort of celebrities and, and tech startups and whatnot. Um, but sort of continuing, you know, on the path of like technology and how it's empowering people, how it's democratizing entrepreneurship in that case. Um, Around that time, uh, in my personal life, my, my mom started showing signs of cognitive difficulty. Uh, and as somebody who's obviously very sort of creative and, 
um, you know, I'm a bit of a research junkie as far as science is concerned. Uh, you know, I started to really sort of dig into the research to figure out why a woman at 59 would start to show these sorts of symptoms. Um, but then also, uh, my impetus was twofold. You know, it was at once, you know, trying to figure out how I might help her to try to come up with a r- r- rationale, just a way for me to sort of wrap my head around, you know, the reality of, of having, a, you know, a parent who's sort of going through this um, very real, uh, you know, stuff, neurologically speaking. But then also, like, how I might prevent, you know, cognitive decline in myself, which I learned begins in the brain decades before the first symptom. So, you know, as somebody who like, like yourself, you know, like, I, you know, my creative faculties are everything, you know, I wake up and I'm, I'm constantly chasing that next idea, that next thing that's going to inspire me and motivate me to write a song or pitch a video series or vlog on YouTube, you know? Um, so I became like literally obsessed. I, I fixated on this idea, the idea that our diet and our lifestyles interplay with our genes in a way that can either lead one to optimized cognition, you know, whatever that means, or cognitive disease, like, you know, dementia 30 years down the line or, or Alzheimer's even worse, you know, so, or actually more specifically, Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, but, um, there are obviously other, other varieties. Uh, and so my latest project really to sort of encapsulate all these ideas is a feature length documentary, um, called breadhead, which I'm currently working on now. Uh, but sort of in the interim to provide sort of multiple points of entry into these ideas, I've been, you know, writing articles for, you know, various publications. I've been sort of vlogging on YouTube, which has been a blast. Um, so I'm trying to really like, you know, as weird as it sounds to make these ideas sexy and, and interesting for young people, because I feel like this is the age demographic, our, you know, demographic that really, where I feel like I really can make the biggest dent, uh, in this disease, you know, in this sort of umbrella of diseases. And so that's basically what my current work is really all about. Mm. All right. So I want to go back uh, to the beginning of this, actually, even further than the beginning of this, you know, one of the things I'm always curious about is sort of early influences and, and, you know, early personalities and molding moments and molding figures Mm. in your life um, that would ultimately lead you to go down this path. Hmm. Great question. Well, I guess, you know, a few people, um, know about my, you know, my interests prior to current TV. So it's a great question. I, um, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with computer science and programming. I'm I'm actually an autodidact, uh, and I have a background in, in, in coding. I actually, when I was in high school, I taught myself visual basic. That was sort of like my gateway drug. Uh, and then I went down the sort of HTML rabbit hole when, you know, at a time when the internet was really just sort of being born it felt like um and so i i've always sort of had like this sort of coders mentality um about science and about biology uh which then led to me in high school i became obsessed with first virology i read a book called the hot zone which i became obsessed with the ebola virus which if i actually went down that path i mean i would have had lots of work over the past couple of years obviously with the you know epidemic or the non-epidemic that was the ebola virus um but then my focus became more pragmatic when I started looking at the way diet affects physical performance. I was always terrible at sports, but I took this sort of programmer, like almost like a gamer's mentality to, um, to fitness. You know, uh, I actually think that there's a, a huge overlap in terms of the feedback loop, um, 
that you experience when you're playing video games and what you experience in the gym with your, you know, with your, with your workouts and sort of what you can do outside of the gym to maximize or, you know, diminish those gains. So I became kind of obsessed with that. You know, actually my high school thesis paper was on creatine monohydrate, which is, uh, you know, a supplement that many people take. So I've, I've always been like obsessed with this stuff. Um, and when I started college, I was actually pre-med. I was a biology major. Uh, and, you know, I, my focus, my interest was still very much then about physical performance. Um, and uh, I realized halfway through college that, um, you know, I really enjoyed storytelling uh, and creativity as much as I loved science. And I kind of saw this pattern in myself that like, you know, as much as I love learning, I didn't think that locking myself up to academia 24 hours a day um, was really going to be my, my personal route to happiness, you know? So I ended up double majoring uh, in film and psychology in college um, and sort of have kept biology as like a, a, a side passion project. If you actually like know me, you know, whenever you're with me at a restaurant, how, you know, how much I look at and, and how conscious I am over the ingredients that I put into my body. Um, but it was very much like, this was very much sort of like a sidebar personal thing for me. Um, and it really, you know, it really, I kind of outed myself as a nutrition and health junkie, uh, with this project breadhead, you know, because once I stumbled upon the ideas that breadhead is sort of predicated on, I realized that I couldn't keep them to myself. I needed to sort of amplify them for, from, you know, for the health of our generation, really. And so, um, so that's what it's been all about for me. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about what you said is that you recognize that your personal path to happiness didn't lie in one particular direction. Yeah. And I think that's unusual for somebody at such an early age. So I'm interested in how people uncover their personal path to happiness and figure out, you know, if they're on the wrong one. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's, it's such a personal question, but for me, I, so I told you I was really into computer programming. I, um, I was actually, for lack of a better word, I was pretty advanced for my age to the point that, and literally zero people, maybe four people know this, but PBS once, once featured me on a show called in the mix, um, about young, uh, like, prodigies, you know, and how they, how young kids were embracing the internet, which at the time was like HTML, I don't know, 1.0. I mean, I don't know exactly what, what it was, but I mean, the, the, the web was very nascent and, you know, I was still using AOL at the time, I think to get online. Um, and so I was getting pretty advanced for my age, uh, which, you know, at the time, I mean, like that was being advanced in general, you know? Um, and so I, after being featured on PBS, it led to a few little kind of summer gigs. One of them being, I was, I was actually interning for PBS. Uh, I coded this like web portal that they had dreamed up. I was like 15 or 16. And literally what, what I was doing was really intellectually stimulating for me. But physically I found that I was spending a lot of time locked in like a room with a computer and it was just a very, um, physically, I just didn't, I didn't like being locked up in a room with a computer at a desk for whatever, eight hours a day. I just like, I, I had a very sort of intuitive sense that that was not for me. Um, 
And that, that actually left a, a pretty weird taste in my mouth, you know, about, um, about that kind of conventional nine to five thing, you know? And so, um, so yeah, so I just like, I realized that my, I wanted my life and just, you know, speaking strictly physically, like I wanted there to be more dynamic dynamism in my, in my physical, like what I did with my life, you know? And so when I was in college at university of Miami, I just kind of thought that like film was something that like, you know, was an all encompassing medium, you know, it, it was visual storytelling, but then there's obviously an auditory component. And like I said, I've always been really into music. So I, I just kind of gravitated to film, you know, not that film was any more resonant of a medium to me than music, but I just kind of liked that it was all encompassing. Um, and, and then I also, it allowed me to double major in psychology, which I find to be fascinating. So I think to answer your question, I mean, I think that the road to happiness is a very, it's a personal decision, you know, but I think that like, um, to really sort of listen to yourself is, is a part of that journey that I think few people do, you know, people let fear sort of get involved and have a say in, uh, in their path to happiness. And so I guess I've been lucky in that in, you know, whatever way I was, I was raised maybe, um, I, you know, I, I, I hear my fear out. I listen to my fear, but I don't let it dictate my actions, you know, um, when making big sort of life decisions. Generally, I think that if you're afraid of doing something, it's a sign that maybe you should give it a try, you know? So let me ask you this. Uh, you, you mentioned that you were a psychology and film major. And what I'm interested in is how those early influences shaped, uh, you know, the way you did your job at Current and the way, you know, you kind of approached and saw the world and how that shaped your worldview uh, to get to be part, you know, as you were part of this thing that was sort of a really, really early part of changing media on the Internet. Yeah. Well, my... My goal has always really been to create content that inspires and informs. Um, and so, you know, like being a double major in, in a double major in film and psychology, um, I learned very on that my, my interests are headier than what is typically embraced in mainstream media. Um, current was obviously an amazing petri dish for me to get to talk about things that were a bit more complex in nature. But, you know, like a lot of the content that I did current, I'm not saying that everything was super heady. Um, but, I learned at current that nobody wants to watch the spinach show, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So like, so I became obsessed with this challenge of finding ways of Trojan horsing the ideas that I'm really interested in, um, into a mainstream audience through other means, you know, whether it's storytelling, whether it's emotion, um, you know, as I did with acting disruptive, we, we, my, you know, we very, you know, literally Trojan horse the conversation about entrepreneurship in through a celebrity angle, you know, like somebody who's not necessarily into business and startup, startup culture is going to watch, you know, one of our episodes because, Hey, Jessica Alba is in it. And Jessica Alba, you know, has lots of fans. Um, so current that's at current is sort of where I honed my, um, my storytelling abilities, you know, getting to work with like award-winning journalists straight out of the gate, like was just an incredible pr privilege for me. Um, and so, yeah, it taught me a lot. What would you say that you learned about sort of the mastery of the craft of storytelling from those early days of current and also, you know, from being exposed to, you know, celebrity level actors who really are absolute masters of their craft? Yeah, they are masters. I mean, 
you know, what is good storytelling? I think it's it's an interesting thing. Like storytelling on, on television, you know, with a web video or even in a song, it's all the same. You know, it's like tension and release. You know, it's, that's kind of like what I feel like is a really basic psychology behind good storytelling. But then, of course, like a good story generally adheres to a narrative arc, you know, the three-act structure. I mean, even songs have a three-act structure. Um, and so... You know, I think I think like learning those those rules because I think when you when you're when you're in film school, you know, like when I was in film school, I could tell you that my heroes were one of my one of my heroes was uh, David Lynch, you know, and the first film that I had the opportunity to make in film school, I was like, okay, I want to make a non-linear thing, you know, like dream scenario where you don't know what's real. I want to perform an Inception on the like all those things flood into your mind at once, but. Um, usually what ends up happening the vast majority of the time, and obviously there are some exceptions, you end up with a really bad student film. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think that what I learned, um, in those early days of current was that, you know, the, the rules are there for a reason and you have to develop a mastery over those rules before you can then, uh, try breaking them, you know? And I think that the rules are there to be broken ultimately, but I think that, um, by, by understanding them, by understanding why those, those rules and those paradigms are there forged over millennia, you know, like Joseph Campbell's the hero's journey. That was like a book that I read in film school. And it's true. Like the idea of the monomyth, like every great story has very, very similar, um, uh, you know, fits a very similar mold and that's for a reason, you know? Um, and so, you know, so I think like paying homage and then respecting those those sorts of guidelines and understanding them can only make you a better storyteller. You know, when I was learning to play music for the first time, I was really resistant to like learning scales, you know, because I thought they were so boring. All I wanted to do was like get on stage and, and, and play chords. But really, in the end, what you do with scales is you, you know, you build this foundational knowledge that like in your subconscious when you're like, performing or when you're speaking or when you're sitting in an editing room and you enter that sort of flow state, that elusive, you know, state of optimal performance when you're actually doing your best work. Um, that's when those sort that embedded knowledge, you know, really seems to emerge and present itself in ways that aren't even always conscious, you know? So I think that putting in the work, um, is an, is a, is an honestly a very essential part of mastery. And so, um, whenever I'm resistant, I always sort of try to remember, uh, the times in my life when I've learned from those structures and, uh, and I'm always, you know, grateful that I, that I go back to them. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting that you brought up that those structures and those rules are there for a reason. And in order to break them in a way that actually works, you have to learn why they work first. And, I, you know, I think I've seen that exact same process in writing. I have seen it in the process of how I do these interviews. I've seen it in the process of just about every bigger piece of work or, or body of work that I've created. Like, I think that, you know, like I've learned why a book is structured the way it is. And I've learned that, you know, by knowing it, I know how to break it and where to break it without totally going off the rails. Right. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's important. You know, I mean, you want to like, you just want to have them in your toolkit, you know, like every toolbox, you, there are staples that, that you need. You need the hammer, you need the Phillips head screwdriver, you know, whether or not you use them, I mean, is completely up to the task at hand. But, you know, every toolbox, you, have, you know, you need the same staples. And I think that, like, I think that's valuable, you know. 
And of course, as always, there are exceptions, you know, but I think in general, for somebody aspiring to be a masterful storyteller, I think that like, you know, there's a reason why, you know, in film school, you have to watch, you know, Hitchcock movies, you have to watch, you know, Kubrick movies, you know, just because like, these are really the, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's mastery at work. And there's like an awe and a wonder there that I think um, is good informationally, but it's also good inspirationally as well. So, yeah, no doubt. So let me ask you this. You know, one of the things that you said about your time at Current was that you had reached sort of a plateau in your growth. And uh, I'm interested in how you learn to recognize when you've reached a plateau in your life. And then more importantly, what do you do about it? Yeah, I think I mean, I think really the way to recognize a plateau in your life is when you stopped growing. Um, And I definitely like when I was at at current, you know, and I I don't want to color my experience there with any kind of negativity because it was really overwhelmingly just amazing. And it was a dream, dream scenario. And I'm still friends with many of the people that I work with, but um, you know, we were doing our best every single day and, uh, and the viewership at a certain point plateaued and, you know, we had gotten to a point where we had learned the rules of storytelling and we, you know, we were working for six years full time with like these incredible storytellers. And so, um, at a certain point we sort of wants to venture out to try to break the rules. And, um, you know, that's kind of what I felt like I did at, uh, you know, with acting disruptive, um, I mean, on the web, you're given a lot more leeway and, you know, as you can imagine working in television, uh, there are a lot more sort of guidelines that you've got to adhere to, um, just in terms of the kind of content that you want to create. And so that like at a certain point became stifling. And then, you know, like even in the metrics, like we saw, like I was, I had a show on every single night on current. It was sort of the network's like nightly magazine show. And, you know, just as an example, we would promote our Twitter page, uh, every night. And, you know, by the time we left current, we only had, 2000 followers, which, you know, they were 2000 amazing followers, but, um, you know, we, uh, you want to make an impact as an artist. You want people to see your work. And so we just kind of felt like we had maxed out and five years of anything, truth be told is like, you know, you get kind of antsy. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's let's shift gears a little bit, and we'll we'll make our way into the content of of Redhead. But what I really want to do is spend some time talking about documentary filmmaking, um, because you're probably one of a handful of filmmakers we've had here. I have had a personal interest in the entire craft of how a documentary comes together. So, a couple of questions around that. One is, you know, sort of how the previous background and previous experiences you've had have you know connected to allow you to start to tell stories through this format of documentary. And of course, you know, what is it that makes a documentary compelling? You know, how is something like this approached? How do the things that we see, like the Jiro dreams of sushi, like the things that you're talking about, how do they come to life? Talk to us about the creative process for a documentary. Great question. Well, I mean, you know, my background is really, you know, it's mostly short form. So this is my first ever feature length documentary. And I'm, I'm seriously like learning as I go. Because it's an it's an art form that definitely you know has a different set of rules and um, you know and I I've I feel like I've learned from the best. But my the reason why I chose to do a, a long form documentary is because you know with a documentary you really don't have to ask anybody for permission to do it. You can kind of just like do it, you know. And and having gone through the TV ringer, you know, and, and you know, very much I've sat in enough TV pitch meetings to know that, um, 
you know, by the time your vision actually makes it to screen, it's not the same vision as it was when you first started. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's for the better, sometimes it's not. Um, and then with short form content on the web, you know, like there's, we're still, I mean, you know, internet video is, is everything like YouTube is, is the future, but you know, I think that there's still a credibility thing where, you know, if I was just going to do a web series to put up on my YouTube page, which at the time that I launched, you know, the Breadhead Kickstarter campaign, I had, you know, less than a hundred subscribers. Um, I'm not sure that I would get to interview the kinds of people that I want to interview for my, you know, quote unquote feature length documentary. So, um, so I think with a doc, you, there's a credibility. Um, you can really sort of build a platform with it that you can't do um, until you, you know, maybe have a certain number of subscribers on YouTube. Um, and so, you know, I think I think the key for doing a, a, a good documentary, you know, you've got to find that sort of emotional component um, that resonates with people. Like I was when I was initially ideating over like how I wanted the narrative of breadhead to, to play out, I was very much like my headspace was in like, you know, the supersize me documentaries of the world. Like what could I do to myself for 30 days that could then prove to my audience that one diet works better for brain health over another diet. And I was like really frustrated um, during that time because I couldn't really think of anything that would make my point, uh, the way just sort of opening up about why this sort of stuff matters to me so much, um, would, you know, and that's really the, I mean, that, that story of why, why I became so obsessed with, you know, brain health, um, really resonated with people once I went, yeah, once I just started talking about why it was so important, you know, like people don't, it seems people don't care so much about what you know versus why you know it, you know, the motivation behind the passion. And, and so, you know, I think, and, you know, obviously we're working on the film now, but I think that that is the way that I can make breadhead a good film is by really sort of inviting the camera into my personal life and, and, you know, showing the reality of, of having a parent that, uh, has been affected by cognitive decline. So, um, so, you know, we're still hashing it out, but, um, but I think just like, you know, being sort of honest and authentic and going as, as deep and as personal as you can go, you know, because your instinct is to, is to feel like, well, if I go too personal, it's not going to, people aren't going to be able to relate to it. But I think that that's the way that you get the most amount of people to relate is by going as personally personal as you can, you know, because to quote one of my favorite films, fight club, you know, <laughs> you're, you're not a unique snowflake, you know, like people, people go through this stuff, you know, there are 7 billion people in the world. And so, um, so you're, you're really not as unique as you think. And so that's kind of my hope is to, is to reach people out there that are going through similar things and that, and might have similar concerns, uh, and so that's the goal. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. 
Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So this actually, I think it's perfect that you brought up, brought up this idea of emotional resonance because I realized I'd forgotten to ask you a question that I wanted to ask about um, in that sort of art of storytelling, which is how you create this tension and release in such a way that it leads to emotional resonance in any of the work that you do or any of the stories that you tell regardless of the medium. Man, I don't know. I mean, it's like sometimes, <laughs> yeah, it's that's like such a... You know it when you feel it kind of thing, but it can be it can be sculpted for sure. And I think music is a is a great way to do that. You um you know, I mean music music typically just has a has a really powerful uh impact on on your, you know, emotional sense. Um you know, I think I think I think a catharsis at the end is a, you know, everybody loves a catharsis. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think however deep down the rabbit hole you go with the tension and the turmoil and the stress, um, I think that you've got to match that with catharsis somehow, whether it's like a, you know, through music montage, what have you. Um, you know, I, I think that those are all uh, great. You know, it's like the bridge of a song. It's like the bridge exists to add tension and to kind of uh, take a detour from, um, you know, the structure that you, you know, for the first verse, chorus, verse, chorus have gotten used to. But then you've got this bridge that kind of like, you know, brings tension because you're like, oh, my God, it's unexpected. What is this? It's weird. And then you come back to the final chorus and that's the catharsis, you know, that's kind of like a typical song structure. Um, and I feel like that's, uh, you know, you do that with film in a sense. It seems to me, you know, from listening to you talk that numerous art forms have influenced the primary one that happens to be yours, which is filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm plagued with this like compulsive growth mindset that is matched only by curiosity, um, in my case. And so whenever I'm, my interest is piqued by, by some kind of new means of expression, I, I tend to obsess. I, I go down the rabbit hole and, um, you know, and I love, I love intrinsic competition, you know, like I've never been, I don't really compete with other people. Like I don't, you know, I'm not a very competitive guy. My sole source of competitive drive comes from within. Uh, you know, like if I feel like I have been told that I'm not good at something or I can't do something, um, I obsess over getting, you know, getting better and seeing whether or not I can challenge that idea. So, you know, music has been one of those, uh, just a great example that I always sort of draw back, draw from because, you know, I grew up not musical. I grew up not having any idea that I could be musical. I thought it was something that was like genetic you know, in fact, whenever we, I had an opportunity to open my mouth to sing in high school, you know, I was always the one that was like off key, but, um, but I worked at it because I realized how much I love music and I couldn't, I decided that I needed to give it a, a try. I needed to intellectually, um, understand what music was. I approached it like a programmer, like I approach, you know, health and, and biohacking, you know, I approach music through the same lens. I, I, 
I tried my best to understand what it meant to sing. And I realized that singing ultimately is a physiological, you know, the end result sounds like music, but really it's a physiological process, you know. Again, going back to those rules and the foundational knowledge, I figured if I could teach myself that foundational, that like how it is to, to sing the same way that like, you know, there was a point when I didn't know how to do a deadlift, but now I know how to do a deadlift, you know, after practice and figuring out the form and, you know, realizing my strengths and weaknesses, you know, and, you know, and catering the move to my own physiology. I approach singing the same way, you know, as a problem needing to be solved. And, you know, and so I, I, I taught myself, you know, after years and years and years and hours and hours and hours of practice, you know, I can now put up a video of myself doing a cover song or playing an original song on YouTube. And, you know, it actually sounds good to some people's ears. So, um, so yeah, so that has definitely informed my, you know, the way I approach filmmaking, the way I approach pretty much any challenge in life, you know, um, I think, I think that's important. I think, you know, there's no problem, uh, too big to solve, you know, and you have to remember that you can't approach a problem with the same mindset that created it. So sometimes it requires thinking outside the box, stepping outside of yourself. And, and I think that that's, you know, that transcends medium, you know, that attitude and that, that sort of perspective, you know, and, and it's definitely, it's definitely helped me to this day. Like right now in real time, I can tell you that I'm, I don't know anything about cameras. I'm the first filmmaker that like literally knows close to nothing about, about cameras. You know, I've, I've worked with, with DPs in the past who handle the camera stuff for me. Uh, but I have a necessity now to get my own camera and to do some shooting, you know, on my own. And so, um, you know, this is something that like, I'm, I've gone down the rabbit hole. I'm now in the midst of all this research and it's like intimidating, but you can't, be intimidated, you know, you just have to like plunge head first into the unknown. And, and I think that that's, you know, I mean, great rewards lie on the other side. That's all I can tell you. Okay. So it's funny you bring this up because it, it reminded me of a, a question that Sam Jones said he asked a lot of people, uh, which I want to ask you, what is being behind the camera taught you about being in front of the camera that you didn't know before? Man, well, just how, <laughs> skilled a good cameraman is honestly you know like i mean i've already i've i've i i recognize great camera work for sure but um the things that you have to modulate on the fly when you're behind the camera i mean it's like insane i mean you could put the camera on auto but that's no fun um and i know that that professional dps are always in manual mode and so uh and I'm, you know, I'm learning this now. I'm incredibly slow and I'm, you know, I'm trying to figure out the difference between an F-stop and an ISO and all that stuff. I definitely learned all these things in film school, but it's been, you know, at least 10 years since film school. So I'm having to relearn a lot of the stuff. But, um, but yeah, you know, like it's, it, by the time you see a great video clip, you know, of something that like, whether I'm hosting it or whether it's, you know, it's that what actually ends up making it to screen is literally the tip of the iceberg. And so what I'm realizing now is just the, just the overwhelming amount of stuff that go into creating good content. Um, and that you really have to like, you know, outsourcing is key, but then it's also about trusting your creative collaborators. And I love creative collaboration. So, um, the trust issue, that was never an issue for me, but, um, 
but you know, it's, uh, that's, I mean, that's pretty much what I've learned because camera, I mean, cameras are complicated, man. <laughs> it's insane. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, and let's start talking specifically about the content of breadhead, uh, and the message that you're trying to get across. But where I really want to start with this is, you know, how having, you know, a parent with cognitive decline has impacted the relationship you have with that parent. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's definitely, it's, you know, part of the reason why I moved back from LA to New York, uh, so that I could, you know, help out. I'm not a, you know, I wouldn't use the term caregiver for my role, but, um, but you know, I, I come from a very close family, a very small family. And so, um, and so while all this was going on with my mom, I knew, I knew that I needed to be closer to home. I, uh, you know, it's, it's affected the relationship in a few ways because, you know, um, you know, my mom is from a generation that, uh, believed for decades, certain things about nutrition and health and what it meant to live a healthy life. Um, and you know, I'm very obviously tracking the science as it comes out week by week. And, you know, and obviously I've dug, dug into the research historically as well, but, um, but undoing decades of dietary dogma, it's a really, it's a nearly insurmountable challenge. You know, I mean, I try my best, but, you know, it can lead to some tense moments, which I do at times have to remind myself that what comes first and foremost is my relationship with my mom. And so, uh, you know, for example, there's a, there's, I think if you ask anybody over, you know, the age of 50, um, how they feel about things like fat and cholesterol. There's a phobia associated with those macronutrients that is really kind of hard coded. You know, it's hard to shake. Um, and you know, my mom is definitely, she definitely has those kinds of phobias. So it's, you know, it's a constant game of tug of war, like trying to shift, um, the way my mom thinks about those sorts of things, uh, to bring her up to speed into the, you know, the, you know, into the current way of thinking about nutrition and health, but, um, but it's hard, man. So, I mean, that's why I really have made it my goal to get these insights out to young people, because I think that like our brains are still very plastic and, you know, and I think that there's an inherent like flexibility, um, you know, in our generation, uh, about things like nutrition and, and health and things like that, just because we're, we're, we were raised on the internet. You know, where we were raised into this this era of exponential technological growth and acceleration. So, um, so I think there's like a flexibility in the way that we think about these sorts of things that I think older generations might be might have missed out on. Um, and so, but you know, it's like it's got its ups and downs. I mean, I, I would say that it's a it's a difficult thing. You know, like um, I know a lot of the sort of marketing and. and you know, our messaging for Breadhead has really been focused around Alzheimer's. And I think that the film ultimately will be broader than that because, you know, the film is about brain health more generally. And, and my mom, thankfully, you know, for better or worse, she, she has not been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. You know, it's, it's a bit more mysterious in her case. Um, but, but yeah, anytime, you know, I mean, if for anybody, man, I think that like one of the, one of the main, one of the worst things about getting older is seeing your parents age. Uh, throw, you know, throw a degenerative disease into that. I mean, it's like, it's a pretty sad situation. So, 
you know, I'm, I'm coping with that, but I'm trying to turn lemons into lemonade. I mean, that's, I feel like what I, what I do, you know, that's what, that's what I think art ultimately is about. It's about taking calamity and turning it into poetry. Wow. I love that. Uh, well, let's, let's talk specifics, um, and kind of spend the last 10 minutes or so of our conversation talking about this whole idea of optimizing cognition through diet and kind of what misperceptions we have, what we might take away and, and what you hope people will take away from listening to, you know, the last part of this conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, so a lot of my, my research is focused on, you know, um, well, it's on, it's on diet and lifestyle. So, um, basically like what I, you know, I don't, I don't believe that there is a, a one size fits all approach to eating for, you know, for optimum or for sort of eating and, and supplementing for optimum, optimum brain health. But I do think that there are some, uh, found, there are some core tenets that I think can be applicable to a general audience. So for one, you know, I, I, I think that the idea that your healthy diet should be based on grains, I think that is erroneous. You know, I, I, I myself have adopted a, a low carbohydrate diet. Um, you know, the science indicates that uh, what begins in the brain decades before cognitive dysfunction, even before um, the you know the initial buildup of that sort of amyloid plaque that characterizes Alzheimer's disease, is what's called glucose hypometabolism. And sorry if you know for being technical with the terminology, but the layman's what that basically means um, for the layman is an underutilization of glucose. And glucose is your you know, all of your cells' primary fuel source, particularly your brain. Your brain is a very metabolically hungry organ. So everything that you eat, 20% of breakfast, lunch, and dinner goes to fuel your brain. Um, and so when there's something metabolically awry going on in your body, I don't think it takes a neuroscientist to realize that you're going to have an impingement on, uh, you know, neuronal function, the functioning of your neurons, which are the cells, you know, your brain cells. So, what I've chosen, chosen to do is to keep all of my cells as insulin sensitive as possible by minimizing my carbohydrate intake. I've absolutely cut out things like sugar, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, sugary beverage. I definitely don't drink my calories. Um, but even carbohydrates that have long been thought of as healthy, like, you know, brown rice, you know, I think these are things that you want to consume, you know, in moderation, if at all. I think that you can have a perfectly healthy diet. Um, avoiding grains altogether. In fact, grains, there's no such thing as an essential grain. Grains are a very calorie-dense way to consume, you know, their constituent nutrients, which you can get from other sources um, in ways that are much more calorie-dense, uh, nutritionally dense. And, you know, nutrient density really is the hallmark of any health food. So, um, so I've chosen to cut out... Uh, grains. Um, I, I avoid gluten containing grains, especially, um, you know, it's, you can't get past the name breadhead. And the reason why the film is called breadhead is because whole wheat bread, which is something that I, you know, for the longest time thought was a health food, uh, is a very high glycemic source of carbohydrates. It also contains gluten, which in everybody induces permeability at the gut lining, which lets things into your, you know, circulation that shouldn't be there, which can induce inflammation um, you know, and research was published last week, you know, showing that literally like groundbreaking textbook rewriting 
research that shows that the you know the brain does have a link to the immune system uh, in the rest of the body, which goes to show you that inflammation that can be brought on by things that you consume by gluten potentially can have you know if not an acute effect an insidious effect over a long period of time on the health of your brain. So, um, so I try to do things like. You know, I eat a low carbohydrate diet. I try to eat very healthful fats. You know, your blood sugar is not affected by fat. Um, so, you know, the fats that I that you eat can you know sway your body in the direction of being you know in a state of you know inflammation or anti-inflammatory, um, and that's determined you know to a large degree by the omega three omega six ratio. You know, the American diet you know, the ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s in the American diet is 1 to 30, typically, which is, you know, obviously heavily, uh, you know, which can promote inflammation quite heavily. Whereas in reality, what it should be is more like 1 to 4, you know, the ratio. Um, things like coconut oil, I think, are essential to brain health. Um, you know, coconut oil is replete with a kind of fat called a medium-chain triglyceride, which provides your brain with ketones meaning that you can actually supply ketones to the brain without being in a ketogenic diet. Um, a ketogenic diet obviously is like a state of diet, a state of, um, it's a physiological state when your body switches over from using glucose as fuel to using fat as fuel. Um, and you can reach that by cutting out all carbs from your diet, by eating a, an extremely low carbohydrate diet. Um, but you can sort of hack that by consuming coconut oil, which is very high. It's a really high dietary source of, of medium chain triglycerides. You can also just get straight up MCT oil, which I know is sold, you know, um, by supplement companies. Um, you know, and I, I eat lean protein, but I also, you know, will embrace grass fed meat when I can, you know, I'm not meat phobic. I definitely eat, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of grass fed steak, things like that. Um, but also bearing in mind that uh, protein itself can be insulinogenic, meaning protein can can promote an insulin spike as well. Um, so basically what I do is I try to eat a low-carbohydrate, moderate-protein, high-fat diet. Um, the fats that I focus on are all sort of quote-unquote brain-healthy, coconut oil, lots of omega-3s, oily fish. Um, the protein that I consume usually comes from lean sources. If they're fatty, I make sure that the animals are, you know, they come from a grass-fed uh, you know, that they're grass fed, which has numerous benefits. I did a, a video on my YouTube channel recently about the, uh, benefits of, of going grass fed versus conventionally raised, um, meat. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a pretty, you know, that that's a pretty general prescription that I think could be best suited for most people, I'd say. Um, you know, and the brain is not, I think that like the health, our health has suffered from the sort of reductionist view that mainstream medicine uh, has sort of taken. And I'm not bashing mainstream medicine in any way. Um, obviously, there are specialties. You know, you have your neurologist, you have your cardiologist. Um, but the brain is not, you know, uh, independent from the rest of the body. You know, the brain is not independent from the eyes. I mean, like if you if you you know, really dig into the research, you'll realize that, that this sort of low carb diet is really what's it's, it's, you know, coming to light might be best for heart health. Um, and might also be best for the health of, of other organs as well. So I don't think that you can do any wrong by following a, a lower carbohydrate diet.
Well, Matt, I hope that I hope that wasn't too technical. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this has been really, really eye opening and and really interesting. Uh, so I'm going to ask you my last question, which is how we close all our interviews uh, at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh man! Wow! Um, man, what makes somebody unmistakable? I mean, I think. I think passion, you know, like, I think that like when you're really, when you're truly passionate about something and it's, and it's authentic and it's genuine, um, I don't, I think that that's unmistakable, you know, and I think regardless of topic, I think that's what, that's what attracts followers and that's what, that, that's what, you know, passion is what galvanizes a tribe ultimately, you know. If you're the kind of person that that is really into a topic, whether it's brain health, whether it's music, whether it's your own music, whether it's um, what have you, you know, uh, I think I think if you're the one to stand up and and let out that battle cry, you know that 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 there's here's a topic. This topic matters to me. I'm going to tell you why it should matter to you. And, and a person that's just willing to go there and wear their passion on their sleeve. I mean, I think that that's unmistakable, you know, so few people are willing to like stand up, um, for what it is that they care about and for what it is that they believe in, you know, um, that I think that when you're, when you're a person that does people notice, you know, like, and I, I can, you know, from, from personal experience, you know, and, and this is a very recent experience. You know, I, I've only been sort of a public brain health advocate um, and nutritional, you know, I mean, people now are even looking to me for, for nutritional advice. Um, I've only been sort of out with this cause for the past, you know, five months. And, um, and you know, I think, I think that because I was the people literally, I get, I get emails from people daily thanking me for standing up. Um, and for, you know, planting my flag and for saying that, you know, this matters to me and, and, you know, it should matter to you. And, you know, I think that's what, you know, it's, it's a battle cry that resonates, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's my best answer. (laughs) Well, this has been great. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I really, I appreciate you coming and sharing your story, your journey and your insights with our listeners. Dude, Srini, well, thank you so much, man. And I, you know, I really look forward to, uh, to reading your writing and to, you know, seeing, you know, uh, you know, everything that you're doing unfold. It sounds so exciting. So it's, it's really great to connect. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.